Well, as John alluded to, when you think of money, what do you think? What does money represent to you? For a lot of people, money represents comfort and happiness. It's their golden ticket in life, which they can exchange for all the other things that make them happy. And as long as they have uh, enough money, they'll, they'll be happy, they'll be content. For others, money represents peace and security. It's their safety net. So, so if anything really bad happens, as long as they have enough money to fall back on, they'll be fine, they'll be safe. The famous billionaire Ted Turner once said in a speech to fellow millionaires, he said, always keep a few hundred million at least, because you never know, things could get really tough, end quote. I think that, that's sage wisdom right there. I think we all could agree that, you know, when the going gets really tough, you're going to need at least 200 million to fall back on when things get really bad. He may not be this extreme, but many view money as their security blanket. Their peace in life is attached to their bank account, and it rises or falls accordingly. And although money is such a powerful force because it functions like a skeleton key. A skeleton key is a key that can open all locks, all doors, get you in any room of the house. And likewise, money, it's a key that unlocks the door to the every desire of a person's heart. It can get you into any place you desire, so to speak. Do you desire peace, power, comfort, security, or happiness? Money can open all those doors. This is why people love money, because they really just love themselves, and money can give them all that they desire. But money can never satisfy those desires. Benjamin Franklin astutely said this, quote, Money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There's nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles that want another way. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith, end quote. Not known for being a man of God, but he did get this one right. There is a danger inherent in riches because riches represent all the desires of the self, desires which run counter to God's desires all too often. This is why the Bible has so much to say about money. Some are shocked to hear that. One of the topics the Bible mentions most is money. One of the topics Jesus mentioned most is money. And that's not because money is so valuable, but because it's so dangerous. Jesus himself captured the essence of the Bible's teaching on money when he said, you cannot serve both God and wealth. You, You can have both God and wealth, but you can't serve both God and wealth. Which in effect means you can't serve both God and yourself. God alone is worthy of our exclusive worship. In our fallenness, we we tend to worship ourselves. In our sinful rebellion against God and his ways, we we live for ourselves and our ways. Money, therefore, it's really the chief servant of self. And therefore, money in scripture, it essentially represents self. In reality, then, when we really think about it, all the warnings in scripture against loving money, and serving money, they're really warning, warnings against loving self and serving self above and against loving and serving God. You can't have it both ways. You can't have two masters. Either your life is lived according to, to God or, or money, which is to say yourself. You become your own God. This is why I think the Bible is also so concerned and God has so much to say about giving. Giving our money away. When you kind of salvation, you realize this life isn't about you. It's about the Lord. You don't live for your will anymore, but you live for his will. You don't live to serve and please just yourself, but, but to serve and please others and, and God. And one serious way you display that God has control of your life now and that, that you really do live for him is by giving your money away. Because as you give your money away, it really is like you're you're giving away love for self. You're denying love for self. And and you're showcasing love for God, love for others in a a tangible way. And this, this pleases God. This is why giving is so pleasing to God. It expresses that now we care more about him and others than ourselves. 
This is not to say that money is evil or you can't be wealthy or you can't even enjoy the fruit of your labors. You can, of course. But as believers, we don't want to be captured by the allure of money and all that it represents. And giving, in fact, even becomes one of the ways which we guard our hearts against that love of money. And so naturally, the Bible has a lot to say about giving money as well. God doesn't need our money. He wants us. He wants our hearts given over to him in devotion. And that's why he wants us to give from the heart, not under compulsion. But give because we love him as an act of worship, a reflection of that, that God has our hearts. That's why we give. That's the heart of giving. And this morning we're going to learn more about this heart of giving from our passage in Philippians chapter 4. So you can open your Bibles now and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We've been away from Philippians for a couple weeks now, so uh, before we get into our passage, I think it's worthwhile to, to get us resituated in the context here. The Apostle Paul, he writes this letter from Rome in prison, but he receives a visitor named Epaphroditus. He's a delegate from the Philippian church. He comes to, to be with Paul, to stay with him, and he has a gift. He's bearing a gift, a love offering from the Philippian church for Paul to take care of all of his needs while he's there in in prison. This gift causes Paul great joy and thankfulness. And so that's actually one of the primary reasons he writes Philippians, to basically say, thank you for your gift. I received Epaphroditus, I received your gift, and thank you. In large part, Philippians is a, a thank you letter. He addresses other key issues, of course, like the church's joy and unity. We've seen those lessons all throughout so far. But now at the end of chapter 4, the end of the letter, Paul is is wrapping things up. And once again, he returns to his initial reason for writing this letter, which is to thank them for their gift and their concern for him. Remember, look back at verse 10. He said, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Paul is thankful to the Lord that the Philippian church has displayed that their concern for Paul, which really is, is just a concern for the Lord and for the gospel. Paul called them back in chapter 1 partners in the gospel. And, and that's, that was a reference to their financial support. And he continues to praise God for their partnership in, in the gospel ministry. Now that said, as we learned last time we were in Philippians, Paul is performing a little bit of a, a balancing act here. He's, he's thankful for their gift, but at the same time, he doesn't want to be coming across as, I guess you could say, too thankful, as if he, he's greedy, as if he's in love with their money. Oh, thank you so much. Here's what I'm going to spend it on. He doesn't want to come across greedy. He's not. He wants to let them know uh, the right perspective on, on their giving. You see, back then, even at the inception of the church, there were hucksters, charlatans, we might call them today, men who preached Christ as a means of gain, financial gain, even back then. Paul was very wary of such false teachers, and he was also very careful to not be lumped together with them, which is why at first, especially, he was very diligent to not take support from the church he was actually at, that they would not ever have any reason to say, He was just here for the money. Now, later on, Paul did receive support from the local churches, and that was a good thing to enable him to to really do ministry full-time. But he still wanted to make sure that these churches knew it wasn't about the money. He wasn't doing this for the money. It's just the means for him to live. In fact, much of his life in, in ministry, Paul even still lived in poverty and destitution. Looking at verse 11, he says, Not that I speak from want, For I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of both being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul's security was not in money. His joy was not in money. His peace, his comfort, his contentment was not in money. But as we learned when we covered these verses, his joy was in the Lord, his his peace was in the Lord, his contentment was in the Lord. And 
And we learned from Paul last summer an extremely valuable lesson about the secret of such contentment, which is simply this. Contentment is not found in circumstances, but in the Lord. Now, moving on to verses 14 through 19, our passage for today, Paul circles back again to the subject of their gift. In a sense, his words from verses 11 through 13 could come across as, as, as like he's being unthankful. Like he's saying, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Or, you know, thanks for your gift, but not too much, because, you know, I'm content, and I didn't really need it anyway. If Paul stopped right at verse 13, his words could be construed as, you know, like he's, he's ungrateful or he's not thankful. But that's not the case. Again, he's walking the tightrope between being thankful for their gift, but not jumping up and down because he just got some money. Like, as if he's greedy or in love with, with riches. Rather, he's jumping up and down because of what their gift represents. Namely, that they, they still love Paul, and they still love the Lord. They still care about the gospel that they're willing to give to support the gospel ministry. That's what excites Paul here in regards to their gift, not, not the paycheck. And that's what he wants to express before he finishes. And he does so in this passage, verses 14 through 19. Now understand, though, before we get into it, this passage is another example of, of a passage that's entirely historical, which means everything in here on the surface has nothing to do with us. This is the Apostle Paul talking directly and specifically to the Philippian church about their gift to him. Last time I checked, you know, we're not the Philippian church. We haven't given any money to Paul. He, he's long gone. So on the surface, you can ask, you know, what, what does this passage have to do with us? It seems very historical. It is. But understand, as always, that the timeless nature of God's word that he inspired it and gave it to the church in such a way as to be always edifying, always instructive and profitable. And even here with, with such a descriptive passage, we see these timeless principles emerge that, you know, even though we're not the Philippian church, we'll, we're still the church. And even though we're not giving to support Paul's ministry, we still give to support the gospel ministry. And so hopefully it's easy to, for you to understand that whatever Paul has to say about their giving, it, it applies to us. The words of Paul and the example of the Philippians in this passage apply to all churches, all who continue to give to the work of the gospel. And I'll profit from this. And it's along these lines from this passage now, I want you to see three timeless results of giving. Three timeless results of giving that you can share in the heart of giving that we mentioned. Three timeless results of giving that you can share in the heart of giving. Why do we give? Why does God call the church to give? We're going to find out as we behold these three results of giving. The first, the recipient is supplied. The recipient of the gift is supplied. This first one, I mean, it should be obvious. The, the one who receives your giving, they're going to be supplied. They're going to be taken care of. The recipient is supplied. When you give, you become like the hands of God. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your money. But he can use you, and he can use your money to meet the needs of others and of his people. We know that God is a sovereign provider of his people, but I trust you also know he's sovereign over the means over which he provides for his people. And often God uses the faithful giving of his people to be that, that means, that his sovereign means of meeting the needs of others. In verse 14, Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. The Philippians had learned of Paul's imprisonment, and they understood, although he wasn't in a dungeon, this is his first imprisonment. It's not, it's not the dark dungeon he'll be in in the second imprisonment. He's not in a dungeon, but he's also not in the Ritz-Carlton. He's still living in, in destitution and, and poverty in his rented quarters. It's not, it's not luxurious. And so they could help ease his burden and affliction. They couldn't spring him out of jail, but they could help support his needs financially. And, and so that's what they did. And in doing so, Paul now here says that, that they had done well. He says, you've done well to share with me 
in my affliction. This means doing something noble or beautiful in character. It's like when that, that woman anointed the head of Jesus with that costly perfume before his death. She had done well. And Jesus uses the same word there for saying that she had done well. Same as the Philippians. That woman recognized that ultimately serving Christ is the greatest use rather, of wealth. Serving Christ is the greatest use of your wealth. Even that costly perfume was worth it to serve Christ. And so it goes today. There is no nobler way to use the riches God has given you than by serving Christ. Because when you do, you're, you're really serving the ministry of the gospel. You're, you're serving him. And that's what the Philippians had done. They had given to Paul, but in effect, their, their giving was to the Lord. They were enabling him to, to keep going, to have a standard of living. He was preaching the gospel from jail there. They were continuing to partner in his gospel ministry. And by their financial sacrifice, they were really showing that they believed Paul's sacrifice was worth it, and even more so, Christ's sacrifice was worth it. And so they gave, and they gave more than once. Jump down to verse 15, or it's really just the next verse, verse 15. He says next, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Here's more of the history. Paul takes him back 10 years before this, the events of Philippians, when he first met them. Ten years before this letter, Paul visited Europe, the first missionary to Europe, Paul. His first stop was Philippi. It was his first stop. He preached the gospel. Some were converted. Some were saved. The church was planted. How many? We, we don't know. Maybe, maybe 10, maybe 20. We, we don't know for sure. But Paul was like their spiritual father, brought the gospel to them. Paul had to move on, though. And so from Philippi, he went to the neighboring town of Thessalonica. There he made more converts as he preached the gospel. People came to Christ. Another church was planted. But already, as he was in Thessalonica, the Philippian church had already sent something to help him. They already contributed to his needs. It, it's, it's remarkable to think about. You've got this little group of brand new believers. I mean, they're all as green as you could be. They've been saved, what, like a month or less? They know the, the bare bones minimum. But you can tell they're just overjoyed with their salvation. They're like these captives who've been finally set free, and now they're thinking, like, how can we, how can we bless the one who helped free us? And so they gather some money, and I would bet it wasn't even that much. These Macedonian churches were known for being just so impoverished, but they give to Paul a couple of times just to bless him, just to keep him going. Pay for his meals, pay for his lodging, whatever it is. They're, they're thinking about the gospel. And they want Paul to be able to do for others what he had done for them by God's grace. And so they did. They gave. From Thessalonica, Paul then went to Berea. That, that's us, Berean Bible Church, right? Went to Berea. But due to intense persecution, he had to flee and so he went south to Athens, then to Corinth. But even at Corinth, though, Paul was so concerned about the, these Macedonian churches that he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, and Silas almost certainly went to Philippi. They were to minister to these new baby churches. A little bit later, we learn in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, that Timothy and Silas now, they come back and they join up with Paul in Corinth. They, they've been to the churches, they come back, but they've got something with them as they join back up with Paul. What do they have? They have another gift. There's another financial gift from the Macedonian churches. And that's almost certainly talking about Philippi. In fact, Paul himself really proves it is here that they were the only ones who gave. The Philippian church gave to him. He says they fully supplied his needs. And at that time, they enabled Paul to minister in Corinth without burdening these new Corinthian believers. In fact, Take it even further, Acts chapter 18, verse 5, which parallels all this. It even suggests that the giving of the Macedonians, really the Philippians, that's what enabled Paul to, for the first time, be a full-time missionary, 
to be fully devoted to the work of the gospel. Their giving enabled Paul to to go into full-time ministry. He no longer had to work as a tent maker to pay his own way. That's that's some impactful giving. Think about it. You're the church that enabled the Apostle Paul to to go full-time and to to multiply his impact. That's multiplying your impact with, with your giving. That's contributing to the work of the ministry. That's why... Giving to the Lord is is investing, spiritual investing that has returns. Well, now fast forward ten years, Paul he's he's in prison, he's in Rome. The Philippians heard about it, and so they're they're back at it. They give another gift. This time it goes with Epaphroditus to Rome to give to Paul to cover his needs, just to keep him going, keep him encouraged, keep him going, and he is fully supplied. Now jump down to the beginning of verse eighteen. He says a little bit later, he says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Verse 18, it's kind of like the receipt of the Philippians gift. In fact, some of the terms here are used in in the ancient world for for receipts, receipt terminology. It's like he's saying, you know, thank you for your, your donation. Here's your receipt. He received their gift. It was more than enough to meet his needs. He actually uses three little verbs in verse 18 that that together show that they've richly blessed him. He basically says, you know, I have all. He received everything they sent. He says, I abound. What they they sent him was, was more than he ever really could have expected. And then he says, I am full. His financial cup was filled to the brim by this gift. I mean, they really, they took care of him. They took care of all of his needs for his prison time, at least for the time being. And, and he was supplied. And this really is the first blessed result of giving. The recipient is supplied. They're blessed. They're taken care of. You meet the needs of others. And like I said before, in doing this, you, you become the means God uses to provide for his people. Especially when you give to the work of service, to the ministry of the gospel, you become the means by which God builds his church. Look, we know Christ builds his church. It's his sovereign work. But again, he uses laborers. He uses laborers to contribute to the work. And you can contribute in many ways. Giving is one of those ways. Preachers and teachers, pastors and missionaries, they often get the most attention and recognition in the church, in a human sense, they get all the pats on the back for doing doing most of the work of building the church. You know, they, they do so much. They do the heavy lifting, people think. But realize, they couldn't do what they do without a lifetime of support from others. They could not make such an impact if countless others weren't supporting them. It's true in a sense that pastors and missionaries today you could say they're on the front lines of gospel ministry like, like Paul was, sure. But all armies need supply lines. And without supplies, armies fall. And for every pastor or missionary that, that makes an impact, there, there's almost always a faithful local church behind him enabling the gospel to go forth and the word to go out and, and that impact to happen. That was the case with Paul and the Philippians. And we're really called to do the same, to be the means that God uses to meet the needs of others, even the spiritual needs of others, that the gospel would go out to the whole world. Of course, God gets all the glory for this because, I mean, anything we give, it it came from him anyway. All that we've received, we've received from God as, as his own gracious gift to us by his care, his providence. But we get the blessing of participating in the gospel. And again, one more time, that's what Paul said about them in, in the first chapter, in the introduction. He thanked them for, for being partners. They had participated in the gospel from the first day until now, he says in chapter 1. From the very first day, they've been his literal partners in the gospel. The, the credit, humanly speaking, is shared between Paul and them. Yeah, they were not the boots-on-the-ground missionaries out in the front lines, but they were just as much a part of the good fight so to speak, by their giving. Recognize that. Appreciate that. Now, as a quick side note, there's a clear emphasis in the New Testament on giving to the work of the ministry. That's a huge priority. 
But this is not to the exclusion of just giving to those in need in general, to just help those who are in need, especially the brethren. We're simply called to be givers, to meet the needs of others, whatever those needs might be. First John 3, 16 through 18 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in, in word and tongue, but in deed and truth. You see, we were once in destitution before the Lord, spiritually, and maybe even physically. But God in love gave to us, and he completely met our spiritual needs. He blessed us in Christ with this gift of, of eternal life. He overwhelmingly met our needs in Christ. And some of you actually have even been blessed on top of that materially, financially. And how can we not, therefore, show the same type of love to others who are destitute physically and spiritually? We are simply called to be the means by which God supplies the needy, especially of the brethren that scriptures teach. Just care for those who are in need. To consider your own giving in this regard and, and appreciate the first result, the first blessed result of giving. The, one of the reasons God wants us to give, the recipient is supplied. This is how God cares for his people. One way he cares for his people. Secondly, the giver is increased. The giver is increased. When you give to others, not only are their needs taken care of, but so are yours. Normally when you give your money away, you tend to lose worth. That's the whole thing about giving. Like it's gone. You've given it away and your, your, your net worth goes down because you've given your money away. But in giving to the things of the Lord, you may lose money, but your worth is increasing. Your, your, your profits are soaring. Your, your loss turns into gain when you're giving to the Lord. Now, how does that work? Well, look back at verse 17. Back at verse 17. After thanking them, he does say again, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Paul just said it. They gave him money, but he's excited because of the profits that they're going to make in their account because of this gift. Again, Paul is balancing his response. He's letting them know he's very thankful for their gift. They have richly met all his needs. He just said that. But he's just showing them what he really delights in is not the actual gift, but what it represents, namely their own increase, their their own blessing. They are blessed as as they give to him. You normally think, like, I'm going to give because I want to bless that person. But there's a dimension where you're being blessed. You are going to be increased because of your giving. And so Paul says he wants to see their, their account increase, their spiritual value increase. But, again, how does that work? You, you give money away. You gain profit. You know, there's, there's no, like, cash back program here. How are, how are they gaining when they lose money? What is this? prophet Paul speaks about in verse 17 that increases to their account when they give. Well, what's interesting is that the word for uh, prophet here in the Greek is just the word for fruit. It's the word for fruit. And Paul wants to see them increase in their fruitfulness. This really ties into Paul's theology of giving overall. Where, understand, Paul views giving as a spiritual transaction. You might view your giving to church or to others as a financial transaction. You know, do I have enough money? You're thinking numbers. How much do I give? It's a financial transaction. And of course it is. But Paul sees giving with a different set of lens on. Namely, this is a spiritual transaction. And giving, I would even go so far to say from Paul's writing, it's a spiritual discipline. You could add it to one of the spiritual disciplines. Picture you have two accounts. One financial, one spiritual. And as you, you give to others to meet the needs of others from your financial account, it, it goes down and down. It starts to dwindle. But at the same time, your, your spiritual account is, is rising. It is increasing. Your financial loss turns to spiritual gain. Commentator Hendrickson says, quote, Paul views this gift to him 
as a spiritual investment entered as a credit to the account of the Philippians, an investment that will increasingly pay them rich dividends, end quote. The point is giving is spiritual investing. Now, don't misunderstand it. It's just a metaphor. Paul is not suggesting that, you know, you have some account before God that you need to, to fill up with, with merit or deeds or in some way earn his favor. We, we know that's certainly not the case. Rather, what's increasing before God as we give is our spiritual fruit. Paul views giving as spiritual fruit. And as they give for the right reasons, from the right heart, they're, they're bearing fruit. Their fruitfulness before God abounds. And this in turn becomes an eternal investment. It's actually just like Jesus taught when he said, Matthew 6, 19-21, he said, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus really taught the same principle behind giving. When you give to the things of the Lord, you're making an eternal investment. Look, you can, you can spend your money on the things of the world. It's, it's not inherently wrong to buy stuff. Most stuff is just, you know, neutral. It's fine. But all that stuff will burn up one day. None of it is eternal. None of it will last. But a better investment is to be had when you spend your money on the things of the Lord. You contribute to the work of service. For then, all of your money will come back to you in the form of spiritual reward. It's kind of like the difference between renting a house and, and owning a house. If you're renting, you maybe you pay 2000 a month in rent. That money is gone. It'll never come back to you. You're paying the rent, and it's just it's gone. But if you own a house, you pay that mortgage, you're going to lose a chunk to interest. But someday, if you sell your house, all that money will, will come back to you. In fact, it may even multiply. And likewise, when you give to the things of the Lord, yeah, you're, you're, you're losing money. But that money makes a return spiritually as a spiritual blessing. Now, the challenge is Jesus himself never defines what this treasure in heaven really is. Look, you don't get a literal mansion in heaven, okay? Stop thinking that if you do. But the Bible is just silent on the form of heavenly rewards. It, it just doesn't quite say. But the Bible is clear that God, in some sense, blesses and increases those who give. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says, There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There's one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 19:17 says, "One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed." And 2 Corinthians 9:6 says, "He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly; he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully." So there's this principle throughout Scripture that as you give in the right manner, from the right motive, your loss turns into spiritual gain. You bear spiritual fruit, which comes with spiritual reward. God is pleased, and you are increased. This is a blessed result of giving, that you are increased before God. Now, that's not the only way you are increased when you give. I also want you to, to think about, and maybe you've never thought about this dimension of giving before, but the sanctifying effect of giving. The sanctifying effect of giving. I mentioned how Paul views giving as spiritual fruit that pleases God. Well, that, that fruit we bear, in turn, nourishes us. There, there's a transforming effect of giving that's worth pointing out. It goes like this. Now, we just learned, when you give, you gain. When you give, you gain. Spiritual gain before God. But also... When you give, you, you grow. When you give away, you, you find yourself growing. I said earlier, money tends to represent all of our desires. That's what, that's what it is. It represents all that we desire. And so often, these are sinful and selfish desires, desires which are opposite God's will. 
And so most of the time, your money represents your heart. Like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. But here's what happens when you, when you give. When you choose to give, you are, in effect, denying self. You're denying self, which is what Christ calls us to do, right? Deny self. You're choosing to deny some selfish desire and to put others ahead of self. Look, you could use all that money. Think of all the money you, you may give to church. I'm sure you could use it all back. You could, you could do a lot with it, remodel something, whatever. But as you give sacrificially and joyfully from a heart that wants to serve God and you want to, to bless others, you want to further the gospel, what, what are you doing? You're modeling Christ who sacrificially gave to us first of himself, out of his riches. You're mimicking Christ. Isn't that sanctification? Don't we call sanctification Christ-likeness sometimes? You see, when you give, you're reflecting the self-giving love and nature of God. And you're displaying that, you know, God is my real treasure, not this money. And in Christ, he's my real master, not these riches. And not only does this transform your giving into an act of worship, but it, it also has this sanctifying effect where you're, you're just you're letting it go. Especially those who struggle with that love for money. There's nothing more sanctifying than just to let it go and deny that very desire by giving it, giving it away, giving it to those in need. That will have a, a further effect of shielding your heart against the love of money. In fact, giving for a lot of people may be the key ingredient in their spiritual growth or lack thereof. When Christians don't give as God calls us to give, I think they're at the top reason it's got to be, you know, I just, I just don't have that much money. If you've ever used that excuse before, you're just, you're totally missing the point. You're missing the spiritual dimension behind giving. God doesn't call us to give just for the sake of fundraising. This isn't the Old Testament theocracy of Israel where we need our tithe, which was effectively taxes for the, the church state government. This is the church. We're not called to give like that at all anymore. And so God doesn't need your money. It's not about the amount of money you give. It's about your heart. And he calls us to give because such giving is a reflection that he has our heart. And you, you love him so much because of all that he's done for you that you are pleased to give even sacrificially of your own to help others to further the gospel, just to participate. You're happy to do so. That's the picture of giving. I used to tell this to my old college students all the time who, you know, they have no money. Their college students are notorious for taking a lot of church's resources and giving nothing in return. But at the same time, I told them, you know, that doesn't matter. It's not about the amount of money. And when you think about it, just about every American has some disposable income because even the college students were always walking around with a $5 Starbucks in hand. And even if they were to just deny that $5 coffee to give, that would be spiritually beneficial. Why? It's not because the church needs your $5. We don't need your $5. We don't care about your $5. You're missing the spiritual discipline of giving. You're missing out on the increase that comes to your account when you give in the form of some spiritual reward and also spiritual growth. That giving is meant to grow you, to challenge you. And this huge temptation for all of us who are called Americans of a love for money. That's our culture. Giving is even more important for us to be considering as a spiritual discipline. Giving is a spiritual exercises that God uses to conform you more into the image of Christ. Because as you give, you, you are reflecting Christ, who himself sacrificially gave. So don't miss out on that. Even the Philippians, who were the poorest of the poor, they scraped together whatever they could. Why? Because they wanted to. Because where your heart is, there your treasure is, and their heart was with Paul. Their heart was with the Lord and the work of the ministry. And so they gave. You know, it's been said that a, a poor man, even a homeless man who only has one dollar to his name, he can cling on to that dollar with all of his might and love it and serve it and treasure it so much 
that he's too rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Giving is not about the amount of your money that God has. It's, the, it's about the amount of your heart that God has. That's the heart of giving. And God wants it all. He doesn't want just 10%. He wants all of you, all of your heart. And when he has all of your heart, you're, you're just going to give. 1%, 2%, 10%, doesn't matter. You give as you see fit, sacrificially unto the Lord with a cheerful heart. That stuff doesn't matter. But what matters is God has your heart and you give from the heart. And as you do, you increase. The giver is increased. Well, let's finish up now with a third timeless result of giving. Number three, the Lord is pleased. The recipient is supplied. The giver is increased. And thirdly, the Lord is pleased. The Lord is pleased. I mentioned how when you give in the right manner, from the right heart, it transforms your giving into a spiritual work, even an act of worship. And, and in this, the Lord is pleased. Let's finish verse 18 now. Go back to verse 18. He says again, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which you have sent. And he says, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And here at the end of verse 18, Paul drops now all the financial imagery and he picks up the imagery of sacrifice, Old Testament sacrifice. From the very beginning, Noah's sacrifice after the flood to the Levitical sacrifices, any time the animal was, was slaughtered and burnt on the altar, the smoke was then pictured as rising to God in heaven and being a, a pleasing aroma, meaning he was pleased with this sacrifice. And of course, God doesn't really care about the smell of barbecue. He cares about his people. He wants their hearts. And these sacrifices were given to them as a way that they can express their worship, that God has their heart, that they will give up something valuable, which back then, goats and lambs and, and livestock, that was your money. You're giving up something valuable to God. And keep in mind, though, God was only pleased with such sacrifices when the offerer came with a pure heart, a real heart of, of devotion and love and worship. If not, God had no regard for the offerings. Just going through the motions and sacrificing, just like it's your duty or your chore or obligation, God cared not at all for such offerings. He had no regard for those offerings. They, they had no spiritual fruit, no spiritual benefit. It's completely worthless. But the one who approaches to sacrifice and real love for the Lord and real worship, in this, God is well pleased. And likewise today, you could be a super rich person, you could donate millions to the church, but if it's done for the wrong reasons and a heart detached from love for Christ and, and, and the right reasons, the right motivations behind it, it profits you nothing. It, it's not a, a spiritual work at all. And God has no regard for such offerings. But as you sacrifice your time and your money unto the Lord, even for you, even if $5 is a real sacrifice for you, and yet you make it because you love the Lord and you want to obey, you want to grow, you want to serve others, God is more well-pleased in that offering than the million dollars from the person who doesn't even care. This is what spiritual sacrifices look like today. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16 says, it says, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. There the author identifies two new sacrifices we have. It's not goats and rams. It's praise and, and giving. These are our sacrifices today. And this is what pleases God. God wants us to give, that others are blessed, that we are sanctified and increased, and that he is pleased, that he's well pleased. So let your offerings be true sacrifices. And speaking of, do you remember the one time where King David was given these oxen for free to make a sacrifice to the Lord? Do you remember how he responded? It's in 2 Samuel 25, or 24, verse 24. 
And the king, as he says, he said to Aruna, the guy who gave him the oxen, he says, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. That became the location of the temple later on, by the way. But just think about that. Get a free gift. Pretty nice, but no, he's gonna. If this is an offering now, it has to has to cost something. Otherwise, it means nothing. And this is the type of giving that pleases God. Sacrificial. Again, it's not about the amount of money, but it has to be sacrificial. Why? Well, when we sacrifice our money, it's, it's showing with our value system. It's showing what we truly value, namely God more. As you give up something you value for him, it shows you value God more. And that, that's what transforms your giving into worship. But if you offer up that which costs you nothing, what does that say about how you, how you view God? He's not worth that much to you, I guess. Again, you're not trying to earn or buy favor. It's just meant to be a reflection of the heart. You know, whenever we have some old clothes, we always just donate them to Goodwill which is a nice thing to do, right? It's a, that's a fine thing. But that's not the type of giving we're talking about here. That's not the type of giving that pleases the Lord, right? That's not our main giving. It's just, you know, what else are we going to do? But at the same time, look, it's, it's nice to give the clothes away, but let's face it, you know, we would just as readily just throw them away. They're, they're no use to us anymore. They have no more value. So we donate them. That's nice. But that's not this type of sacrificial giving. It costs us nothing. But when you're giving to the Lord, it should be different. Again, you have to grasp the spiritual dimension behind giving. We think in such financial terms, but what transforms your giving into true worship is this heart of sacrifice where we're happy to give, even if it costs us something, because we want to we bless the Lord, bless others, further the gospel. We have that desire for him. Him who, remember, loved us first, sent Christ first to sacrifice himself for us first. And so remember this, let your giving be a, a spiritual sacrifice from the heart. And speaking of, just to finish here, don't forget how, like I said, God gave to us first. We've talked about these three results of giving, that the recipient is supplied, the giver is increased, the Lord is pleased. But Notice all three of these results, they're all true of God's giving to us. The gift that God gave to us first. God, out of love, he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. It came at a cost. And he purchased for us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, which we now receive by faith in Christ as a gift. It's a free gift of eternal life where we're spared from judgment because of Christ's sacrifice. This is the greatest gift. And as you all know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And notice, when God gave this gift, the recipient was supplied. That's us. We were supplied with, with forgiveness, with eternal life by this gift. When God gave the gift of his son, the giver was increased. Indeed, that the glory of Christ abounds through his death and resurrection. And when God gave this gift, he was well pleased. The God of the gift himself was well pleased. Pleased to crush his son for our sake. This was an acceptable and well-pleasing sacrifice to God. And see, God has given us so much. It's part of his character. It's just part of his love. It's inherent in the nature of God as love to give. And this is why he calls his people to likewise give. Because as we give, we reflect his glory to the world. We reflect his character to the world. We're letting people know we, we're now like God. We're not like the world anymore, who's so desperately greedy for self and, and money. We're now have been made in the image of Christ, and we're going to give like him. And as you give to others, or to the church, or to those in need, you're testifying, not, not that God needs your money, but that he has your heart. In this, you're pleased. In this, God is pleased. 
And to, to truly finish, lastly, verse 19. Verse 19. God, he's not done giving. He even continues to give to us. Verse 19. He says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Even now, God, he's still giving to us, richly supplying all of our needs in Christ Jesus. Look, you may not get everything you want. This is not a promise of prosperity. There's no such promise in the Bible for all people. Jesus and the apostles all lived and died in in poverty pretty much. But God does promise to give you what you need and even draw out of the storehouse of Christ's glory, that the treasure of his spiritual strength he will give to you at all times, giving us everything we need, providing for us not financial blessing all the time, but he does provide something better in Christ, out of Christ's riches, and that is contentment. Don't forget what we learned, verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. How? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is a a truly powerful combination when you combine that the secret of contentment with the heart of giving you get a church that now has a powerful testimony to the world. And you get a people who together bear witness of the glory of the gospel of Christ, which is all about giving. We received all things in Christ, all that we need in in this life and the next in him. We have eternal peace and contentment. And so now we're free to give. We are people who give. And I pray that now through your giving, you likewise reflect the Lord in giving of yourself and what you have to others. And that through your giving, many others would come to know the greatest gift of all is the gift of life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning offering up our sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to you for for being a God who gives. That we remember you gave first. And really the greatest gift you can give is yourself. You you showcase your glory. You let us behold your glory. And though separated by our sins, you you redeem us to bring us back to your presence through the gift of your son. This other monumental gift you've given on our behalf, Lord. Thank you for the life-giving, life-saving gift of Christ. It came at a high cost, the blood of the spotless, precious lamb. But nonetheless, Lord, you were pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if perhaps he might save some, and indeed he did. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for that, that gift, that sacrifice. And now you call us to follow you, even denying ourselves. And though we cannot save others per se, yours is the only atonement we can, we can give, though. We can give the gospel. We can give money to help the gospel go forth. You call us to be laborers now in in many ways to, to further your work of building this church all for your glory, the one who has given us all things. So now, Lord, we just want to return everything to you, all that you've given financially, spiritually, just in all ways. We just want to bounce back to you in prayer and praise and thanksgiving and in sacrificial giving, Lord. We thank you, the God of the offering, And may we now reflect you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.